Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Ryan! This is Buddy Franklin! This is the greatest showman! Got the handball off to Myers. Myers looking for the lead of Stengel. Gee, they're good. Gee, they're sharp. Razzle Dazzle Rioli. Oh, who else? McDonald. Timberwolf. From inside the centre square. time of day wherever you may be tuning in wherever you are tuning in from this is episode 101 of americans watching the footy i am ethan castle coming to you from south san francisco california i am benjamin castle coming to you from south san francisco california tonight we're gonna answer some pretty pivotal questions such as what the fuck though and where the love go and i'm gonna take the road less traveled and say that the new york times was correct the new little mermaid movie did not have enough king where did that come from? First paragraph in the New York Times article about the Little Mermaid. I shit you not. The new live-action Little Mermaid is everything nobody should want in a movie. Dutiful and defensive, yet desperate for approval. Oh, sorry, third sentence. It reeks of obligation and noble intentions. Joy, fun, mystery, risk, flavor, kink, they're missing. All right, then. Not like I plan on seeing the remake, since I think all these remakes are unnecessary. Especially if there's no kink. I mean, come on. Why isn't Sebastian the Crab wearing like a full leather gimp suit? That's an image. I don't think I'm going to Photoshop that, but let your imagination run wild. I think Brian is actively trying to get away from that thought as he assumes his position behind your window blinds. Yeah, he's going in there right now. Um, Did he have his little freak out since we last recorded? Basically, he was sitting up there behind the window. It was around 5 a.m. a few nights ago, and he saw something in the like, in front of the house, like another cat, I think, and he, like, screamed and hissed and just kind of went nuts. Like, he doesn't usually do that. So that was that was an adventure. I did not sleep much that night. Was this at the end of the long footy night, uh, Saturday morning? Yeah, this was a couple days before that. Oh, okay. It was, like, Thursday morning, so there was no footy. Yeah. Meanwhile, I've already been talking a lot of footy today. I'm recording this late Sunday night, U.S. time, so Monday mid-afternoon, Australian time, and... Earlier today, I was on Donnie's Disposal with Coach Donnie Hess, our friend out in Des Moines, Iowa, head coach of the Des Moines Roosters of the USAFL, and also the commissioner of our fantasy league. So I've already spoken a lot. I'll try to bring up some different points from what I had there. Always enjoy the discussion with him. It was nice to be able to record with him for the first time. And I know, Ethan, you'll get your opportunity soon. Yeah, I believe I'm recording with him round 18. I'm going to be in Des Moines for a day before that, I believe. So hopefully we get a chance to meet up in person if schedules line up. I do want to give a quick fantasy update. You know, just a couple of matchups of note for this week. Donnie's Roosters lost to Lee's Key West Coronas. Uh, Craig's Yank on the footy, figuring it out. He beat Rick by almost 200. Uh, Brad beating Tim is not a surprise. Jawan beating Ross by more than 400 is impressive. Khalil's team putting up a nice 1,700 to beat Gill, and uh, let's see, what's this? Oh, um, drafting on the Dunny, beating Bunga Jumping by 150. Well done. And that was despite us both captaining the wrong person. 
Yours cost you more, I think. Well, it wouldn't have cost me the matchup. I took a gamble on Captaining Libba, thinking the longer ground would help him, but uh, instead, Tim Tarano did Tim Tarano things, but I captained Stephen Canulio instead of Rory Laird, and that cost me 40 points. That's actually not too bad. We both took gambles on players that weren't the central part of a midfield group for this week. My second and third most valuable players this week, Matt Rowell and Jaden Hunt. I expected Hunt to get you a lot of points with Jermaine Jones being out. Also, I really hope you don't have one of the restricted free agents I'm going after. With bye weeks coming up, I'm going to take a couple zeros, but hopefully not too many. And there's one restricted free agent in particular that when I was looking over stats today, I was like, oh shit, I really got to get this guy. Well, I'm playing uh, Juwan the Don this coming week, and I've got a full 18 as of now, though I do want to change up one player. My highest scores of the round, other than... Toronto, Dylan Moore, 126. Yeah, that wasn't, yeah, a surprise. Tom Stewart, 121. Andrew Brayshaw, 103. And around 100 from Mr. Jai Newcomb. Yeah, I've got to go up against Lee next week. He's got, he's the ladder leader, though I beat him a couple rounds ago. He's going to have a few buys. He's got a few dockers on his squad. Uh, Let's see, any other big scores for me? Uh, Chad Warner got 105. Nathan Broad, 102. Luke Ryan, 102. Good stuff. But this ain't a fantasy podcast, and this is our first year playing it, but we're getting the hang of it. I mean, I think we're both doing a bit better than I would have expected, and hopefully more of you guys want to join up. And like, personally, I prefer the draft-style league, because there's more head-to-head competition. Like, I like both, but I think if you want to do shit with your friends, you got to do a draft league. Right now, I am, wow, I'm up to second in the ladder. I'm on a Nice little, what, five, six round winning streak now, I think. I'm tied for second and have the best percentage of those. And then you are seventh. Yeah, so just outside of Kraken finals right now. I've got some favorable matchups coming up, I think, with the buys. But let's get into the action that happened this past round on the Oval rather than in the fantasy department. Oh, yeah, it's actually, I'm on a seven game winning streak. But that's that's all you need to know. I've won seven straight. Yep. So, again, let's go with what actually happened on a real oval between real teams. Sydney Swans, 11-11-77, defeating Carlton 6-15-51. I wish I had the guts to stay up or maybe stay home from work and just hear the talkback radio after this one to hear Blues fans melting apart for another couple hours. You know, I've realized what it is that makes the Blues losing so fun. I feel like there's a difference between, like, your typical Carlton fan, like the typical Collingwood and Richmond fan. I feel like Collingwood and Richmond, you're more likely to have like the toothless guy screaming, whereas Carlton is like, you know, the fancy, well-dressed, snotty, but yet the moment they win one game, act like they're champions. The moment they lose one game, act like the season's over. Well, I do think the season could be over for them. I'm going to go on a limb and say that it is. I don't think they're all the way cooked yet. They are now 4-6-1. and one. And six points out of a final spot, but season's not even halfway done. I wouldn't go into full panic mode yet, but I think there are areas of serious concern considering, I I mean, I know it's been said a million times, back-to-back Coleman winners, and now they can't kick a fucking goal. Ahead of this past round, they were 17th in goal accuracy, and they were just 0.7% ahead of Hawthorne. I'm not sure how that changed with Hawthorne's game. Hawthorne's goal accuracy wasn't great. I'm, I'm thinking that... Carlton Hawthorne game might be like the sickos game of the year instead of a game between like, you know, West Coast North or Hawthorne, because 
be like just a record for behinds. Like both teams could kick like six goals and 30 behinds. Bring it on. Harry Mackay does not know what angles to take. He's doubting himself so much at this point with his goal kicking that he needs someone to come in and help him. And I I would hope that's considering Matthew Lloyd's brother is pretty high up at Carlton that the Essendon Gray could come in and help him considering he's a left footer. The Blues were plus three in... It, yeah. The Blues were plus three in contested possessions, plus eight in clearances, plus eight in inside 50s. Wait, plus eight? No, it was corrected to plus six. The Blues were... The Blues had more contested possessions, plus six in clearances, plus eight in inside 50s, but those stats hit a lot of poor ball use for them. And meanwhile, on the other end, the Swans had a very sure thing and accelerating play from the back third in Nick Blakey. And their selection this week really helped them with that. Lewis Melkin coming in for his first game of the year. Once he worked his way into things, starting around the second quarter, you really noticed Blakey being able to have that classic lizard run and carry that we've expected from him while the Swans have been at their best the past couple years. And the Blues have players who are capable of doing that, particularly Adam Saad. What? But he wasn't being given the option to do that because teammates were passing him up and David King was really going on about this in the postgame coverage, and I agree with him. Give Saad the chance. He's a good running carry. He's one of their sure field kicks. Why was he not getting more of the ball? I'm much more concerned with their forward structure than with that. I mean, that's a concern, but the fact is they've gotten most of their forwards decent chances. Maybe not great chances, but good enough. You'd expect they'd be able to put some of them away. I'm surprised they didn't do that thing that they've tried a few rounds ago where they just like stuck Mackay out on the wing against the Bulldogs because that worked. Probably should have tried that again. I mean, I know it's not the be-all and end-all, and I'm sure Sydney were prepared for it now that teams know it, but it could have helped. And also, it could have allowed for Corey Durden to get in the game more. We've been waiting for him to step up, and it hasn't happened, and the kicks that he had this game weren't great. I know he's only played 33 career games, but I'd definitely sit him for a week. I don't know if it's something that's been like a psychological thing going back to him fucking up against Collingwood last year or if he's just not playing well. But at some point, something has got to give. He hasn't had more than 11 disposals in the game. He's had two two-goal games and he's kicked nothing in the last two rounds. Like that's that's not going to cut it. And this is a guy who should be a really solid piece to round out what's supposed to be a great forward line. And I think... As much as there's been talk about Mackay, there should be a lot more discussion about Durden because, I mean, entering this season, you look at this team, you probably think of him as like that third forward, right? Either him or Jack Silvani, who was not in this week. Yes, Silvani played VFL and sounds like he played pretty well down there, was played in somewhat of, de of a defensive role from what I was reading. So I don't know, is that backing in Durden and Jesse Motlop in terms of the forward stock? I don't know where exactly this is going to go, but it looks very unsure in general, especially with the Coleman's continuing to be inaccurate, kicking one six in this one. There was a lot of talk on Twitter, people saying, oh, the Swans didn't play a very good game. I thought they played decently well. I mean, clearly they played well enough and they did the right thing stylistically. Again, Melikin being in meant that Blakey was much freer and didn't have to stay back and defend because he's not a strong 1v1 defender. You saw how much he got exposed against the Dockers a couple rounds prior. I think considering what they've been missing, most notably Callum Mills, both McCartans, Dane Rampey, who should be back after the bye, 
they did all right for themselves. I don't think they were amazing, but considering how much Mills gives, what they were able to do in the midfield, not bad. Most of all, it's like as Blakey goes, this team goes, and Blakey played in the right spots. Again, bringing Melican in changed so much. Blakey finished with 26 disposals, 12 marks, 10 intercepts, 626 meters gained. It just, it was the version of him that we saw last year. The rest of the team might not have looked up to the level we had seen last year from a lot of them, but he did, and it completely changes the complexion of the team. Melkin being, being a sure fullback also takes some of the burden off Jake Lloyd and Robbie Fox, who were able to have more active disposal and ground-gaining games further up, further upfield, for a bit further forward. Lloyd got 35 disposals at 627 meters gain. Robbie Fox had 24 and 10 intercepts. You were talking about the good midfield work. Chad Warner led that, winning the Goods O'Laughlin medal for best on ground in the in this uh, Margaret game, kicking 2-1 from 29 at 583 meters. I mean, that's a very, that's the kind of game that we expect from him. So the pieces aligned when they needed to for the Swans. Meanwhile, for the Blues, not only are they on this losing run, but they got a few injuries to deal with now. They had to make the sub pretty early as George Hewitt got concussed. He was trying to tackle Buddy and cops Nick Newman's elbow. Then at three-quarter time, Newman was ruled out with a hamstring injury. Ollie Hollins was ruled out with a collarbone issue. We saw Patrick Cripps limping a bit. He also just wasn't playing very well even before that. He's been human. Kind of meh this year. He has not been, you know, a Brownlow contender. And baggers are taking out their frustration on him. It's funny because, like, everything we see from any sort of print or TV outlet seems to be Mackay-focused, but, like, he hasn't been, you know, last year's Patrick Cripps. And I get there's probably going to be a little drop-off, but he needs to be at least, like, a top-tier midfielder, and he hasn't been. He's just been a football player. And he's going to be a bit more under the pump this coming week, as will Sam Walsh, who did have another productive game. Walsh with a goal, 31 disposals at 471 meters, because Adam Chera was suspended for a game for a dangerous tackle. Had two suspensions at this one, Luke Parker for the Swans also. But good thing is for the Swans, even though Parker's out, they've got the bye to plan for being without him if they don't appeal or the appeal fails. And then they'll be up against the Saints when they come back in round 13. Other notable stats for this game, Errol Golden and Justin McInerney and Luke Parker, all 21 disposals. Parker, 13 contested possessions, 7 clearances. In his absence... I would have to think that it would be James Robottom to step up there in those contests. Robottom with another active game, double-digit tackles and contested possessions, but him, but he's a bit slider build and hasn't gotten as much into the game outside those immediate contests this year, so I'd really look at his performance going into round 13 as being a focal point. Golden kicked 1-1, McInerney with two goals and eight marks. I've said that throughout like Sydney's struggles last few weeks, McInerney's been one of the few bright spots, and it's nice to see him getting some recognition now as the team's playing better. Harry Cunningham, a behind in 20 disposals. Will Hayward, been noticing him a lot. Goal in 20 disposals. Isaac Heaney, interesting game, doing less work around goal, but still 19 disposals, 14 contested possessions, an octopus and seven clearances. Swans did lose clearances, mostly because Carlton got him 30 to 18 on stoppage clearances. Yeah, but again, it was the work off the off those immediate contests where they were inferior. Obviously, you had Sam Doherty being active, 25 disposals and seven tackles. He was playing more of a half-forward role in this one, leaving Jacob Wiedering to get more of the 
marking roll on the back again. Wiedering did do a good job against Buddy, getting 10 marks. In terms of the forwards that we did like, Matt Koschel was more of a running forward. He had a goal from 23 disposals at 527 meters. He has the potential to be that spark plug for the Blues, although he's not the most consistent player. Anyone else? I think that's good enough. Uh, Kernow. I already mentioned that he kicked 1-3. Once again, I ask, what sort of incriminating evidence does Ed Kernow have to get him in there? Like, 14 disposals playing half the game isn't bad, but it's just like, he doesn't do anything. Do I need to make the Photoshop, the DJ Khaled style one? What yes. even? I already did that for Bailey J this year. I might need to do it again. I'm waiting for Jackson Bins to debut. Obviously, Patty Dow will get another shot at some point, although he's a quadruple A guy. Something's going to change, though. It, it has to. I, I don't understand why Brody Kemp uh, has played a couple weeks in a row. A couple weeks in a row. I know Alex Chincata had one pretty bad fuck up in the VFL game, but other than that, I had big numbers. Yeah. I I don't know. Things need to change. Uh, things might need to change for the Saints as well. St. Kilda 12-6-78, defeated by Hawthorne 12-16-88. I think that this was the most surprising result of the round for me, Ethan, because, I mean, we'd spoken our piece about Geelong Greater Western Sydney going into the round, and I think you being a Cats member attuned me a little more to the areas in which Geelong would have difficulty. For this one, though, it was the first time Hawthorne had really had to struggle and grind out a win in, in those dying moments. We weren't sure if they'd be able to do that. Quick question, how many games did you tip correctly this round? Because I know most people, most people struggled. I tipped three of them correctly. I also had three. I had Collingwood, Essendon, and GWS. Collingwood, Essendon, Port Adelaide. Yeah, I thought this was going to be one of those games where St. Kilda did not play all that well, but won because of inferior goal kicking at the other end. But uh, Hawthorne proved me wrong. I thought this would be like a good loss for a young team, a really frustrating loss if they're like a year or two more down the road, where it's like you're doing everything right. You just haven't learned how to finish yet, how to... You know, you have to learn how to win games, but they actually did this time. They were the better team throughout. Looking at the some of the team stats for this one, plus 69 in disposals. Nice. Plus 76 in uncontested possessions. And they were also plus 24 in the hitouts. So Reason Meek combining to go up against Rowan Marshall did the job, and Marshall was still active in the game in other facets. Took some good intercept marks when drifting into the defensive 50, and I'm glad he's still been able to get into the game outside those ruck contests. He's really my one positive observation for the Saints in this game. It was like a surprisingly quiet day for most of their jacks, but I noticed Marshall just like creating space for himself, marking an open space and steering play downfield, sometimes along the wing, sometimes in the middle of the ground, but like usually if you're a ruckman, you've got the opposing ruckman right on you and he's able to actually free himself up and create space which makes him a pretty rare talent at that position and i'm glad that he's been able to stay free like that as the first rate ruckman for st kilda for the first time in a few years since patty Ryder came on board initially and you know now patty's gone marshall's still capable of that that said hawthorne were definitely the better team will day was excellent 30 disposals 11 score involvements 597 meters most impressed i've been with him I've been on the Jai Newcomb train since Easter Monday last year, a behind 31 disposals, nine clearances, game 502 meters. But the real star of the show, despite copping a one-game suspension for a hit on Anthony Caminiti that earned him an early 50-meter penalty, James Sicily, 
a behind 43 disposals, 22 intercepts, 16 marks, 11 score involvements, 658 meters. What I loved about this performance is he was still doing like some of the annoying James Sicily things, but he also just played a really good game. Actually, I think it wasn't the the Caminiti bump that got him the 50. It was the, it was that 100 meter penalty sequence early on with Max King that got him that 50. The Caminiti bump was right by the goal square. That was in live play. I think it was on a chance where the Saints scored and Sicily lifted an elbow and got Caminiti in the head. But early on, this was just past the midpoint of the first quarter. Max King got pushed over by James Blank for a 50. And then Sicily decided, yeah, I'm the captain. I'll push him too. So that was where that 50 came in. But other than that and, and the bump, which was more careless than anything, Sicily kept his head about him and had the most complete game I've ever seen from him. It's one of the most complete games that a defender could have. Not just the number of possessions, but the number of intercept possessions is just insane. You know, that the goal with the 100 meters worth of penalties was a stupid one. Sam Frost gave up a really stupid goal right before halftime to let the Saints go into the break tight, and it's just because it's Frostball. It just seemed like Hawthorne just doing things that were going to cost them this game. They had also kicked 2-6 for the quarter. Yeah, they were 7-14 through 3, and then they kicked 5-2 in the fourth and actually had the final five goals of the game after trailing 76-56. to There were really two key chances midway through the fourth where the Saints could have gone back up by more than three goals and put this away, but Dan Butler had a miss, and then Jack Higgins dropped a wide-open mark in front of goal. I think he took his eyes off it and was like, all right, am I just going to run this in instead of mark it and take the set shot? And instead, he ended up with a behind. Hawks took the lead with 124 left on a Jacob Kashitsky goal. He finally got his Kashitsky together after not kicking straight all game. And then Luke Bruce finished it off with 18 seconds left. The Hawks end a five-game head-to-head losing streak. Also, I loved Sicily's interview after the game. Like, I see what they like about him as captain. If he just stops doing stupid shit, this guy is this guy is someone that would be really, really easy to get behind. And I see why like the young players enjoy him. There seems to be a good relationship there. Hawthorne have been doing the right thing in terms of greater structure. And it's easy to get on a on a team when they're losing early on, when it's obvious that they're going to be losing. But we've talked about the kind of long game they're playing. As you said very early on, Ethan, you don't want your maximum potential to be one of those bottom two final spots. Go ahead, pull your resources, have the younger guys develop together, and then make your run for it. That's going to happen for these Hawks. Since getting their ass kicked three times in the first four rounds, well, one of those they didn't really get it handed to them until second half, but rounds five and six, very close losses. Round seven, got beaten in the second half. Round eight, got killed. Round nine, got killed. Now back-to-back wins. So that's only two of the last seven games they've gotten it handed to them, which for a young team with their eyes clearly set two, three years down the road, if not a little farther, that's not bad. If you're competitive in about two-thirds of your games, that's not a bad benchmark for them. Do you want to touch a little bit more on the Saints before we move on here? The new coach smell has clearly worn off, and some people were noting that we're starting to see them revert a little bit to some of the eras that had plagued them under Brett Ratton these past few years. I think also Hawthorne was a difficult matchup because they very much go against the slow, ball-controlling style that the Saints like to play. So there's something about that sort of matchup that is 
going to be difficult for St. Kilda to wrap themselves around. Although, you know, early part of the year, they were really strong at bringing the ball from defensive 50 to 450. I think through round four or five, they were the top ranked club in competition through that. So is it that the other clubs have caught up to Ross Lyons style? Is it that the older pieces coming back in have been, it's been a little bit tougher for them to get used to Lyons style? I don't think it's that. I think they were just really able to rely on other teams struggling, especially struggling to kick straight. That said, Jack Steele and Jack Sinclair usually play better than they did in this game. Maybe this is what it takes for them to get Marcus Winhager back in. They've got to buy this round as well, right? Yeah. And it's a good group of teams that are off this round. Yeah, St. Kilda, Sydney, Frio, and Brisbane. So we're going to have fun talking about them when we do our progress report, which we'll be recording uh, Monday night our time, Tuesday afternoon Australian time. So we're going to have three episodes these next few weeks, uh, given just these progress reports these check-ins about the teams that are on buys because some people might forget that there are other teams that aren't playing sometimes other couple quick stat notes for the hawks connor nash behind 27 disposals and 10 score involvements jarman mp kicked 1-1 off 26 disposals he gained 534 meters lachlan bramble 23 disposals could save him from that constant shuttle back and forth with box hill and james warple 24 disposals and 12 score involvements that's Brian Myers' friend, James Warple. Some notable state stats just from volume. Brad Crouch, a goal from 26 of the seven clearances, though I didn't think he played a super clean game. Naziah Wagonin Miller getting 25 and gaining 624 meters has become very typical for him. His ability to gain ground at halfback has allowed Jackson Clare to venture a bit more forward. In the back, you had Liam Stalker and Callum Wilkie being the most active with 23 and 21 disposals, respectively. There's been a rotating cast of players who have been able to support Loki back there, and that's a good thing. This week it was more Stalker, and sometimes Rowan Marshall with his marks. You were focusing more on Saints-Hawks game in the early Saturday window or late Friday for us here on the West Coast. Meanwhile, I was lapping up Norman Wallyell up the Demons 10-12-72, defeated by the Dockers 12-7-79. They did it again in round 11 at the G, and... It didn't necessarily look like it was going to go that way. It was a tough contest from early on. Obviously, the Ds came into this game a bit banged up. Clayton Oliver has that hamstring injury that's keeping him out for about a month. Lockie Hunter was suspended. That forced Angus Brayshaw to play one of the wing roles opposite Ed Langdon. And Brayshaw is a guy that often shifts onto that spot if Hunter has to come off the ground. But I think Angus having to take on that role for pretty much the full game, I think he was 88% time on ground, just further messed up the rotations for them. And you could tell that they were a team that was in, in flux throughout this game. Meanwhile, the Dockers were thrust into a difficult spot because they lost Sean Darcy to a hamstring injury before the midpoint of the second quarter. He was subbed out with about six minutes left in the second quarter. And from there... Luke Jackson took over. I love how carefree he seems. He's just like, yeah, this is another game. I still like these guys. Apparently, he attended Mubbard's offseason planning meeting even after having been traded. This is according to Stephen May. He's just that chill, I guess. And he was thrust into a really difficult spot, having pretty much solo ruck duties against Max Gone and Brody Grundy. And he was excellent. Best game of the year for him. One of those where it's like, you know, it's not scripted, but it's it fits a lot of narratives. 
I saw the expected score for this game favored Melbourne pretty heavily. Did they just kind of piss away some chances or what What was kind of your takeaway from that? They did miss a couple chances early on. I know one from Brody Grundy off of a center clearance. I think the misses just added up throughout the game. And meanwhile, the Dockers hit some more difficult shots. You had a couple sharper angle kicks that Bailey Banfield, for example, was able to hit. I'm so glad that Banfield's continuing to play well because we're both being proven very right about him. Expected score for this game, 80.3 to 63.5. But I never, you know, I wasn't watching this game that closely, but I never thought that it gave off that impression. Nah, I, I, I don't think it did either. Like, there are some games you look at and, you know, it's like, what the hell? How are they not winning this game? This this just seemed like a pretty tight game that Frio was able to overcome a serious obstacle in. Yeah, and the other thing is, you know, expected score purely looks at shots on goal. Meanwhile, if you're looking at kind of the flow of this game, the Dockers were cleaner with the ball in hand. Dockers' disposal efficiency was 76.1 to the D's 65.6, though. Nar were more efficient inside 50. Didn't really get that impression from them. I think it was maybe just contested possessions, them trying to find the right shots. But again, without Oliver, the game plan in the midfield wasn't as clear. And Frio pushed the pace like they needed to in the second half. They still went primarily by foot, which has surprised me a bit with what worked for them, handballing through the corner last year. But they were faster overall. And after quiet first halves, you had James H really elevating at halfback. He has rebounded from a really slow start to his year. And then looking forward, neither Lucky Schultz nor Michael Frederick had a single touch in the first half. And then Schultz especially finished out the game quite nicely, kicking an important goal. I was concerned for the Dockers near the start of the fourth quarter after Kazi Pickett centered for Tom Sparrow, who was really active to start the quarter. And they drew it within three points with 11.25 left. At that point, inside 50s were 10 to 3 to non for the quarter, and they'd had all four center clearances. But the Dockers kept their pressure high, and they managed to get the kicks to, to go their way. Jai Amos continued to be strong, won an important contest against Jake Lever on second effort. He is looking really mature, and another three-goal effort for him. Get him that Rising Star nomination, please. More important stat lines for the Dockers. Andrew Brayshaw has worked back into the fold really nicely these past couple weeks and obviously won this matchup against his brother Angus. I loved that he mimed to Angus, you know, strap in. Like, it's a way to get your head in the game. He mimed him putting his helmet on. Yeah, Angus did play this game with the helmet on 100% of the time. That didn't happen last week. But Andrew with 29 disposals and 7 clearances. Caleb Sarong with a goal from 26. James Aish with a goal from 24. I like seeing him venture forward sometimes when they've got enough numbers. Jake Romero with 24, though. He's having a dangerous tackle suspension challenge himself. Nat Fife with 20 disposals and 11 contested possessions. This is the most Nat Fife I've noticed Nat Fife to be. I was really impressed by the 20 disposal game that Matthew Johnson had. Another good supporting piece there in the midfield, always looking forward. And then Luke Jackson's final stat line, 1-1 one, one from 19, 15 hitouts, 11 contested possessions, and 8 clearances. Those 8 clearances are a whole lot for a Ruckman, especially against this difficult Melbourne midfield. Christian Petraka did have a pretty solid day with Clayton Oliver absent. That shouldn't surprise anyone. 
30 disposals, 10 to score involvements, 8 clearances, 633 meters gained. Angus Brayshaw finished with a behind, 27 disposals, 498 meters. Brody Grundy, 1-2 from 20 hitouts, 19 disposals, and 13 contested possessions. Christian Salem's up to speed, 19 disposals and 7 tackles. The matchup between him and Lockie Schultz was really entertaining in the second half, and Schultz ended up taking advantage by the middle of the fourth quarter. Schultz didn't have the ball at all first half, he said, right? Yep, but scored an important goal when it mattered with just under 13 minutes left to bring the lead back out to, to 15. Alex Neal Bolin, 18 disposals, 9 tackles. Tom Sparrow, a goal, 18 disposals, 10 contested possessions. And great to see James Harms back in. A goal, two behinds, 14 disposals, and 7 tackles. I do remember him kicking a couple early ones that, you know, had they gone through, maybe it's a different story. I think the thing that I like so much about this game, though, out of Wyallup was that it was really their newer faces and inclusions that took this game on. Jayamis with his goals, Luke Jackson taking over in the second half, Jager O'Meara getting important possessions, and Josh Tracy just being present mattered so much. And been saying it every week. He had a couple goals as well. 3-0 have figured out their structure, and it's really fun. They've now got the bye week to kind of sit on it and then really solidify things when they come back. They've won four in a row. I just love talking about this team, and I know I should be angry about them or have some sort of hatred toward them as an Eagles member. I can't bring myself to do it. Hopefully at some point there's something that really sparks that rivalry again, but probably would require both teams to be kind of around the same level. Yeah, and that ain't the case right now. Okay. I am ready for some ranting and some vulgarity. Yeah, Geelong 10-14-74, defeated by Greater Western Sydney 12-9-81. Uh, the Giants have now won their last three trips to Cardinia Park. Geelong's most recent supposed sort of home win over them was a final in Perth a couple years ago. We never understood why the Cats were being favored in the 40s. Again, and like, it wasn't just the point spread that had those models. It was... It was like some of the advanced models from some of the stat people we follow on Twitter that had a ride around there, too, which just... Yeah, like, yeah, Glico had it there. Like, have you watched this team the last couple of weeks? Again, it is no midfield versus a midfield. And not just that, I thought the game plan for this game fucking sucked, and it wasn't until midway through the third quarter that the coaches realized it and did something with it. They fixed one thing at halftime, which was putting Sam DeConing... As a defender, I have no fucking idea why they played him at forward. Were they worried about him getting too banged up in some of the contests there? I didn't understand well, it at all. I didn't do that. Then why is he even playing? Exactly. I mean, he he had the whole Rip Hamilton thing going. Or was it more Batman? It was, I don't know. It was probably more like Batman, Joel Embiid, LeBron. It's like the black one rather than the clear one. Jalen Brown. A lot of different people have used it. He seemed a little uncomfortable with it. Hopefully doesn't need it next week. Uh... Brandon Parfit is just not working. He was a bit bandaged going into this game, right? Something with his hand? Yeah, but that doesn't mean you can't go for the ball and be aggressive and get into contests. Instead, he just... I remember there was one stoppage in the second quarter where he was probably like the second or third closest cap to the ball, and he just stood there and watched. John Segler is just maybe the worst player in the entire AFL that's getting run out there right now. Like, it's... The guy cannot play... I'd rather throw... No Ruckman out there. Have Mark Blitzov's taken her. I don't know. See what. See if Shannon Neal could handle that role or just. You got to try something. I know you, there's 
hope for grabbing someone in the midseason draft. Former Swan Sam Nismith for uh, Port Melbourne has been averaging something like 40 hitouts a game. I don't know what Shannon Neal's deal is, but like, this it, does not work. Five hitouts to advantage for the entire game. And anytime he gets the ball, he t- he takes a couple decent marks and then he's like, he knows he can't kick, so he just looks for someone to handball to immediately, even if that someone is going to get wrapped up right away. There was one early in the second half where, like, the halftime adjustment was, okay, why don't you just catch the ball instead of hit it out? And then he immediately got called for holding the ball and gave up a goal to Kieran Briggs. Good on Briggs for taking advantage of that, and Briggs has been really strong these past couple weeks. He's definitely moved ahead of Matt Flynn, and, I mean, I, I was really complimentary of him when I was talking with Rick Shibani this past week, and he's, he's proven himself again. Yes, not against the greatest competition, but still, he's shown he belongs. Toby Green played well in this 200th game. Played well? I, I mean, he helped control a lot of this game. Had 4-2 from 19 disposals and 9 marks. Really, the things that I focused on this game were Green and Green for the Giants. Tom Green with 28, and he's just a ball in the midfield, especially in the center square. I love how hard he goes for the ball, and he has risen to elite levels, I think, and he's finally getting the recognition for the game that he's played the past couple years. He's also getting more of those opportunities with Tim Tarano and Jacob Hopper out of the picture. That said, Dwayne Russell couldn't get Toby's dick out of his mouth. Like, I thought Russell actually called a really good game in Adelaide the next night, which seems a little bit weird to me as a former port guy that he was so able to do that when but you see some of these some commentators biases show so easily most of the time though you could just have a soundboard in place for him and you'd be able to do fine it's like brent daniels played a phenomenal game and yet it was toby this toby that greatest forward ever like oh my fucking god yeah let's talk more about bigga instead three goals from 19 disposals and seven marks and it was just every time he got the ball you knew something was gonna happening for the GWS offense. Think think kind of like what I've said about Luke Pedler, except doing a bit more of the goal kicking himself. It's it's a combination of of the effective disposals and also the speed that he provides. You understand with him being able to do that forward, the runs that they're able to have through the middle, even starting a little further back from guys like Lockie Ash, who had 26 disposals at nine marks, going through that crowded midfield, and then the forward speed for them kind of cements why they're able to potentially return to the Tsunami style. I know you were complimentary of Toby Bedford for his speed as well. I'm so glad that Snooze is getting time regularly. I did not realize how fast he was. Also, I've known. Also, Connor Iden played a nice game, but also was allowed to just, like, grab opposing forwards before the ball was even kicked to them. The umpiring in this game fucking sucked. It was not the worst umpired game of the day. No, it, it in both directions, it, it wasn't great. There were some critical calls that, that weren't great on either end there was a there was one with about two and a half minutes left toby green with an obvious push in the back on zach guthrie both arms fully extended not called and then brent daniels gets the game ceiling goal a few seconds after that can't happen it, it's it's the umpire year being at that time i think that and it was such across. an egregious obvious one i mean it's it was as bad as some of the stuff that hawkins has gone away with oh no this was i think this was like Far more blatant. There was no attempt to disguise it. A GWS led by 24, allowing two backbreaking goals to Jake Riccardi of all people is really frustrating. Like, I think he's probably the weakest forward on that group. If Aaron Tadman is able to drop the ball well, then then I would say so, yeah. Like, he's 
the one that, you know, a healthy Harry Himmelberg and you think he's probably not involved. Frustrating to only score 74 against a team missing Himmelberg and Nick Haynes and Sam Taylor and Phil Davis, but that's more on the midfield than the forwards. The forwards, Jeremy Cameron missed a couple shots that you probably expect him to hit. He kicked two free off 17 disposals, played a decent game, not like put the team on his back, but I, I'm waiting for that like massive performance for him to really take over. I, I thought it was going to be this week. The thing is, despite getting down 24, this got down to two on two occasions because the Cats finally realized, wait a minute, let's stop trying to bomb it into contests and actually just try to, you know, kick short and get some runs going. And when they did, it actually worked. And that's why my hope for this game is like they figured themselves out late, even, even though they didn't win. Yeah, it could be one of those. We lost the game, but we found ourselves. And I'd be way more confident in that if these next four games weren't going to be such a bitch. I mean, like maybe the easiest of these next four is at the SCG. You've got dogs at Port off the bye, Melbourne at Sydney. So this is, I mean, I'm tipping him to be five and nine. Yeah, I think that's, that's reasonable. But despite this really frustrating loss with everyone else towards the top, except Collingwood and Port Adelaide struggling this week, there's still a path to a pretty good ladder position. It's just, you're going to have to do it by going through some far better teams than the ones you've lost to. But it's there. The other little small positives, Jake Cole-Jashney had a game much more like his performance last year. 15 disposals, 9 contested possessions, 9 intercepts. He still had a couple of pretty major derps, which is why some people have such a negative perception of him. But overall, he had a nice game. And Zach Tui, I don't know if someone said it to him or if he just realized, like, hey... I'm better than I've been, but he played with energy that hadn't been there in a while. Oh yeah, first time ever having three Irish players in the lineup. I wonder if that was part of the motivation for him. Thoughts on uh, County Mayo's Ashin Mullen on debut? For a guy with five VFL games of experience, wow. Like, there's a spark that's there when he touches the ball, and it's crazy to think how little experience he has with this version of football, and to think how high the ceiling is. Uh, they thought they were going to get him last year. He stayed in Ireland for another year. Was an all-star. I have tremendously high hopes for him. I, I see why he's been pegged as, you know, the Irish Nick Dacos. There's something there. Also, Brian Myers, a couple of ridiculous kicks to set up Cameron. He had one other really nice setup that wasn't converted by... Oh, it was also Cameron. Um, Brian, two behinds, 22 disposals and nine score involvements. Two biggest performers, numbers-wise, Isaac Smith, 24 disposals and 741 meters off of behind, and Tom Stewart, 31 disposals, 12 intercepts, 9 marks, gained 783 meters. If they can capture what they did from kind of late in the third quarter on, all is not lost. Big if. Big stats that we didn't mention for the Giants. Lockie Whitfield is looking much sure at halfback with 31 disposals and 721 meters gained. Steven Candilio with a behind off 26 and 7 clearances. Jesse Hogan, two behinds on 19 disposals, but 12 contested possessions and 10 marks. I almost wonder if he could have that sort of Harry Mackay type tall half forward flank and wing roll to help set up the more accurate kicks for goal for GWS. And hopefully Aaron Cadman will become one of those. He's not a good kick for goal, but he's a big dude who can mark the shit out of the ball. He's inconsistent. He's fucking marking everything. He's inconsistent in front of goal, I'll say that. 
Connor Ide with 19 disposals and 9 intercepts. Kieran Briggs, a goal from 34, hit out 17 disposals and 8 clearances. Shane Mumford and the rest of the Giants' Ruck team have done very well with him. Mumford and Sons, would you say? Did they wait? Did they wait for him? Do they wear arm garters? Do they dress like an 1880s dry goods clerk? A reminder that you can find us on Twitter and on YouTube at Americans Footy. You can find me personally on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. You can find me on Twitter at Castle Media. And you can find Brian Harambe currently sitting in the window. He's also on Instagram at CatNameGrian. Yeah, he's just sat there for pretty much the entire session. I expect that'll change. I expect he'll decide to get up and about at some point. We resume with the late Saturday games. Gold Coast Suns, 13-6-84, defeating the Western Bulldogs, 11-11-77. Darwin delivers. Yeah, this ended up being a really fun one. You had the Bulldogs jump out to a quick 20-0 lead, and it looked like, all right, this is going to be ugly. And it was a predominantly Bulldogs crowd as well. I know they built up a base there from the games they hosted there throughout the 2000s and up until 2013, and I'm glad that's stuck. Hopefully the Suns can build up something similar if they... Keep hosting there. And then the Suns went on a 51-9 run. Led 51-29 the half. Stayed around the three-goal margin for a while. And then Dogs went on a 21-0 run to cut the lead down to one that had some really shitty umpiring. You also had a couple of those Darcy McPherson zero-awareness plays. Uh, the worst call of the night. There were a lot of bad ones, but worst of all was... Ben Ainsworth getting a 50-meter penalty for standing too close on the mark when the umpire never told him back up at all. Like, you tell him back up two meters and give him, like, a second to react. Okay, this did not happen. This was really bad. I think someone else was supposed to actually stay on the mark, but Ainsworth stood there. She's like, there's got to be some level of communication. Free kicks for the game were 22-13, but there were just a bunch of non-calls, and there was... Uh, the one that cut it to a single point, I couldn't really determine much from a good angle on, but a lot of people said Cody Wakeman kind of sold this high contact foul on Ben Long. That cut it to 77-76, but there to save the day after Jack Lukosius couldn't mark a Jai Farrer kick that went too far was Bailey Humphrey, who kicked a sharp angle dribbler with two and a half minutes left to stretch the lead back to eight. Really a play that put the game away. My biggest takeaway from this game you know, it's been fun to watch Humphrey these first few. He's got such a good sense of when to do the ordinary things and when to make the high-risk crazy play, and that was a great display of it. The first few games that Humphrey had been up, he'd been playing pretty much exclusively in the forward 50. had had some trouble getting into games. I think he was subbed out one time after having a total of one kick. But the past two weeks, he's been having more of a full-field role I'm not sure if maybe that's Stuart Dew and company trying things out in the absence of Tuke Miller, seeing who can eat up some of those midfield possessions. But Humphrey has made, like you said, smart decisions as to when to make those more daring plays. And having that kick to seal it, that was that was the right time for that. Some great kicking for goal in this one in general. I mean, not the most accurate game, but flashy stuff. A lot of soccer's in this one. And Jack Binda Lukosius was leading the way there. Lukosius's five straight included all four of the Suns' goals in the second quarter. All four of the second quarter goals at all. Suns won that second quarter 26-2. Lukosius was Tim O'Brien's dad in this game. I don't think O'Brien's going to be in the lineup much longer. I think 
you'd rather see Alex Keith or maybe try someone new because it, it didn't work. I mean, Josh Bruce. Yeah, that would. I mean, if you're so dead set on him being a defender or you devote Rory Lobb to that role, the, the dogs have no shortage of talls to figure something out with. But uh, Tim O'Brien's probably not the guy. I hope they give him another chance next week, and I hope he gets baptized by Tom Hawkins or something. But, you know, if I'm the Bulldogs, I'm not sweating it too much over losing this game. I feel like this is a good loss you can get something out of. Also cool to see Nick Holman get a couple goals in his 100th game. I know it was a pretty emotional one for him, dedicated to his mom who had died a couple years ago before a game against the Bulldogs, actually. And uh, Matt Rowell in his 50th game. Like, I know getting chaired off in your 50th game isn't a thing, but... 16 clearances. I think that that could merit it. He also had a goal, 29 disposals, 23 contested possessions, and seven tackles. I love that since Took Miller's gone down, he's just like, all right, I'm going to keep being our big tackler, but also do this. But this is the Matt Rowell that we saw at the start of 2020, maybe with a little bit less of the goal kicking, though he did have one. I think it was in, maybe it was the Sydney Richmond game. I remember it was during the, where there was a big thing over like a, kick hitting the padding on the post and that happened again in this game with Aaron Naughton had he kicked that it would have been a two-point game with 97 seconds left instead it was a seven-point game and the Suns were able to finish it off and I'm very glad the Suns won this game because the umpiring was such dog shit no pun intended I mean it was really fucking bad it was 22 versus 26 normally it's like I don't entirely care who wins this game I just, I'm just entertained to see a close one but and, and, and when when you get a couple calls like that, the 50 meter on Ainsworth was really the tipping point for me. And I know there were a lot of people that were like mind blown by that. And there were a bunch of other bad calls beforehand. This is a this is a really solid win for the Suns. And it puts them in a similar spot to where they were last year. I'm, I'm not going to label them as a final team. I'm not going to do that. We've seen them in this position before. They were... They're still only in 12th. They are 5-6. and six. They have the worst percentage of the 5-6 and six teams, although they're not that far below 100%. It's just, they're going to need to prove to me that they can get beyond where they were last year. Because right now, the pattern of this season, even though there's some dif different contributors, it still seems very similar to last year. Slow start where it's like, well, shit, they didn't deliver on their potential at all. Now it's like, okay, they're turning the corner. They're starting to do something. I think, What'll really decide it for me, looking ahead, if they could either somehow beat Collingwood round 16 or win at Port Adelaide round 17, then we're talking. Even then, they still have a bitch of a schedule after that with Q Clash, a trip to Adelaide, trip to Sydney, second meeting with Carlton. Who knows what Carlton will be like by then. But the Suns are in position to be in position, and their matchup this coming week against the Crows should be awesome, and I hate that the Two best games this round are at the same time. Yeah, Dogs Cats is going to be, be the one on US TV out of those. It's going to be on Fox 2. It's a shame that neither of the Darwin games are getting US exposure. Yeah, that game, that'll be on both FS2 and on 7, whereas Fox Footy will handle Crows and Suns, which I think the way both those teams played this week really sets the stage for that one to be pretty exciting. More of the Crows, obviously, still four games from now. Wow. One weird thing I noticed in this game was that Joel Jeffrey was playing farther back, and I don't think he impacted the game a ton. I was hoping to see him up front more. That's where he's been playing as of late in the reserves. Maybe it just hasn't translated at the top level yet. The question is, where do you go with him from here? 
I'm glad he got in playing back home in the Northern Territory, though. That's good on its own. I think Ben King's presence probably didn't help. Uh, Malcolm Rose is also kind of quiet, a behind and nine disposals. But similar to how the Dogs have won a lot of games, the Suns really won this game with their big-time studs coming through, not just Raul and Lukosius. Uh, Noah Anderson, 26 disposals, 17 contested possessions, 7 clearances. Jared Witts, 19 disposals, 12 contested possessions, 51 hitouts. Yes, 51. I feel like he's the most likely to get into the 50s each week. Really interesting contrast of styles between him and Tim English, where English is, you know, so much more than just hitouts, whereas Witts is basically just the hitout guy. Uh, David Swallow, who I think, I think he and Brain Fiorini both kind of operate in the shadows a bit. Swallow a goal, 19 disposals, 11 contested possessions. Mac Andrews, still a really shaky kick, but a good mark. And he had seven tackles. No insane chase down tackle like that one in the VFL last year, but 15 disposals, 504 meters. Charlie Ballard, 14 disposals, 11 intercepts. Nick Holman, two goals, 12 disposals, and an octopus. Interestingly, Dogs had 18 more inside 50s, but couldn't capitalize. It wasn't like they kicked that poorly. I mean, 11 11. You know, they did have three more scoring shots than the Suns, but nothing overwhelming. It never felt like, other than the first few minutes, the Dogs were the overwhelmingly better team, and the Suns were the overwhelmingly better team for the later stages of the first quarter and the whole second quarter. And the second half was kind of even. And uh, Nick Holman mentioned him. He's the other guy who's stepping up as a tackler without Tuke Miller, which shouldn't be surprising with Matt Rowell having to do more, uh, more on-ball stuff. 12 disposals and the octopus for Holman. Holman's also just the scrappiest out of the bunch in terms of being willing to get into scrubs, being a bit of an agitator as well. He was the one to get things fired up a bit in Q Clash. And that's another reason why I like watching him. But one other thing that I noted here, looking through what I had written down, uh, there were a lot of times where the Bulldog defenders were struggling to communicate, like going into marking contests and it cost them the best thing they can do in marking contests is just let Liam Jones handle it because he's a really good intercept defender. But he had a couple with the aforementioned Tim O'Brien kind of getting in people's way. And, and Taylor DeRay had a couple of weird ones. Jones and Ed Richards operate together really well. I think there's a clear mentor-mentee thing going on there. Richards has elevated his game as well. But Jones with 14 disposals, all of them kicks, don't see that too much. 13 intercepts, 10 marks, and 547 meters gained. His presence has allowed for a lot greater flexibility from the likes of Caleb Daniel, I think. Daniel with a goal from 25 disposals and 8 clearances as he continues to be that capable half-forward, capable of kicking really well with both feet. Typical high-possession numbers for Jack McRae, 33 disposals, 8 tackles, and 520 meters gained. Marcus Bonapelli, 27, 11 tackles, 9 clears, and then 707 meters. Bailey Dale, a behind, 27 disposals, 591 meters gained. Bailey Smith kicked 1-1 one, one from 23 disposals. Speaking of Bailey's, Bailey Williams, 2 goals from 17 disposals. I think the biggest players that I've noticed kind of rising out of the depths and becoming players that I think of as more main role guys for the Dogs this year have been Bailey Williams and Anthony Scott. And Scott had a goal in this one as well. So that's six games in a row for him with a goal. Not Never a huge possession guy, but he knows what to do when he gets the chance of the forward 50. Tim English, by the way, had a behind 22 hitouts, 17 disposals, and eight marks. His versatility across the full field, it, I mean, it's kind of like what Rowan Marshall was able to do, to do at times when he could slide back in defense and get some of those important marks. But when it mattered, the Suns had the better possessions and the greater accuracy. 
By the way, also great to see Jamar Hagen kick a couple goals. I love the proud deadly sign that one of the fans had for him, and you could tell that he in particular got uh, was getting a lot of support from the Darwin crowd. And the atmosphere in general there is is always great. Having a game there in front of such a notable indigenous population for the Sir Doug Nichols round, it's just a joy to watch. You think about, you know, some of the young kids there getting to see this up close and giving them something to strive for. It's it's really cool. And I'm glad there's another game there next week. And it was just like the crowd shots in this game just make you happy. West Coast 6-10-46 defeated by Essendon 14-12-96. I watched none of the zero game. of this game. I only had really the one screen to use. So I kind of just... I'd, I'd check in if something interesting happened. I checked on the score a couple times, and that was that was all I needed to see. The Eagles had nowhere to go but up from last weekend. They went up by 20 points from last week. That's something. They never were ridiculously behind in, in this game. Yes, you know, 50 points isn't a great margin to lose by. Only kicking six is not great, and only three goal kickers because Oscar Allen kicked four of those. Allen continues to get recognition from the Victorian media pretty regularly. Allen kicked one point shy of what the whole team kicked last week. Uh, They didn't get out kicked by a single player, so that's cool. That's an improvement. The Eagles were able to match a bit of Essendon's pressure early on, and Ruben Jinby, as always, was eager to get into the action. You were mentioning earlier that Jaden Hunt got you a lot of points. That's because Hunt had to make up for some of the carrying and kicking roll off halfback that Jermaine Jones would have otherwise covered, and Jones could be out for much of the rest of the season with that syndesmosis injury. Hunter behind, 34 disposals, 9 marks and 684 meters gained. Liam Duggan had 35 disposals and 12 marks, so still, you know, the older guys still with the big stats for the Eagles. Tim Kelly with 29 and 7 marks, Shannon Hearn, welcome back into the lineup, Bunga. Still a really accurate kick over the field. He had 27 disposals, 10 marks, and 551 meters. Elliot Yo made it through a game and had 24 disposals. It's it's more remarkable that he made it through the game. The guy's got talent. When he's healthy, he can be a pretty solid halfback. You saw it in the Eagles flag here, and he's still capable of that. I think the most surprising stat for me in this one was the Eagles taking the hitouts, 37-19. Andrew Phillips was taken out during the week. It makes sense that you arrest him against a team where having two rucks isn't much of a necessity. The real question here when you're looking at the Eagles' performance and trying to evaluate them is how much did Essendon take their foot off the gas in this one? I noticed that past the first quarter, Essendon's pressure wasn't as high. It still took a bit for them to to break this game out a little bit. It was 53-29 to 29 at the half, and I think by that point, Don's figured that they'd done enough, and they had. I'm not really disappointed that much by the Eagles effort because I was mostly looking for improvement from last week and there was they didn't stay as down as they were I was glad that Brady Hoff got a lot of the ball he had 21 disposals he's my favorite out of the young group for them aside from Jinby it's more a game where I can understand the margin because of the pure talent level that the teams have rather than anything strategic from Brad Scott or Adam Simpson really making the difference so I honestly don't have much feeling about this game in general. At least I'm not frustrated, really, because there were times earlier th- earlier this year where I was wanting to throw my chair at what the Eagles were doing. I nearly did after Bailey J. Williams was a buffoon in round one and cost them the win. He's worked his way into things this year. I've 
don't know if he's ever going to be a high quality Ruckman, like top five in the competition, but he's looking more like he belongs at the top level. There, that's probably far more ticks on this game than you would have expected talking about the Eagles. You look at some of the Essendon stats for this game, some high possession numbers because, especially near the end of the second quarter, they started playing more keep away, kind of slowing things down. Maybe the Eagles forced them into that by cutting off some of their lanes, but overall, they did what they needed to do. Time to look at some more important actual tests for them coming up these next few weeks because, well, who knows what North could bring now, actually, but after that, Carlton, Brio out of the bye, Port, Adelaide, Geelong, Bulldogs, Sydney. We're going to be learned a lot about this Essendon team. New coach smells have worn off in general by now, and I'm excited to really learn more about what Brad Scott thinks about his list. Stats of note for Essendon. Did you get any of them? No. Zach Barrett, 32 disposals, 9 score involvements. Nick Martin, I thought, you know, the first time I saw him, oh, this guy's going to be a big goal kicker, but instead, 31 disposals, 10 marks, 9 score involvements, 595 meters. Mason Redman, a goal, 31 disposals, 11 marks, 591 meters. Jordan Ridley, 28 disposals and 8 marks. Welcome back. Andrew McGrath, because apparently the TH doesn't exist there. Mrs. Foul? Yeah. Uh, 26 disposals and 9 marks. Dyson Heppel, 24 disposals and 13 marks. Not Dead Ben Hobbs, 2 goals, 17 disposals, 8 marks. Kyle Langford, 3-2 off 15 disposals and 7 marks. Him being healthy and Essendon playing better, that is more than correlation. Uh, the Bombers were more than 65% efficiency inside 50 to the Eagles, 37. They took 17 contested marks to West Coast, 7. And here's the stat that would bother me if I'm an Eagles fan. Getting tackled eight more times inside 50, considering how many more chances the Bombers had. Like, that's that's not entirely an effort thing, but it's at least in part an effort thing. That is a bit bothersome, yeah. On to Sunday. Richmond 9-13-67, defeated by Port 10-17-77. Not a game where I ever felt the result was really in doubt after Port kicked 5-4-34 for the first quarter, and then... Richmond weren't able to make their way back into things because they kicked 2-8 in the second term. I felt like there was a chance there pretty frequently, actually. I don't know. I, a I just had this feeling that they used up their best opportunities already and that depth was going to show the second half, and it did. After the first quarter, Richmond were just as good, if not better, and it was just, yeah, that second quarter inaccuracy that really hurt them because... When you have 10 scoring shots to 5, you gotta do better to cut into the lead than just outscoring a team by 14. That And it would have been worse had Port not kicked 0-5 for the quarter. That second quarter was a bit of a rough watch. But Port got off to a great start, aside from giving up the very first goal of the game to Shea Bolton. They outscored the Tigers 34-3 to the rest of the first quarter. And they did this, remember, Tom Jonas out suspended, Travis Boak out with a rib injury, but Richmond, of course, you know, Charlie Dixon's still out. Of course, Richmond, you know, didn't have their coach. Also didn't have Nick Flostone. He had a cork leg. Andrew McWalter's really young looking, by the way. Almost looks like looks like he could be related to, to Gillen and Hamish McLaughlin a little bit. But Richmond, they didn't seem to change their style too much. You know, promoting from within gives you that sense of continuity. And, you know, there's been so much praise for the system they've run. 
By the way, really cool that the fans gave an ovation at the 17-minute mark of the first quarter, since 17 was the start of their big run under Hardwick, although they immediately gave up a goal, which kind of kind of muted that. Yeah, it went from Richmond fans and Port fans applauding to just Port being excited for another goal very quickly. Was that Ollie Lord there? Uh, no, that was Ollie Wines' goal, but uh, Ollie Lord. Another Ollie. Ollie Lord is making his case to stay in the lineup even when Charlie Dixon and Todd Marshall heal up. He's a really quality tall forward. I really like this kid. You know what hurts? His grandfather was a Bradlow medalist for the Cats. He's a Geelong grammar kid. So maybe down the road he's coming home, you know? Not not immediately, but at some point that'll be yet another one that I can kind of point to and be like, hey, I, having him would be cool. I'm, I'm not going to like bang that drum like I have for Darcy Parrish yet because there isn't as much of a glaring need there. But you hear like Geelong Falcons or Geelong Grammar and it's like that Leo DiCaprio reaction pointing at the screen. Pretty much, yeah. Also, Miles Bergman played a really solid game. I thought he was just smooth moving with the ball, good decision maker, shifted forward actually in the second half and wasn't quite sure about that, but was all right. I was just, I, I didn't get a ton out of this game because it was kind of a slog at times and the rain didn't help with that. What I will say is that Richmond are still a tough out and I've decided that even though he has not been a super accurate kick for goal a lot of the time, I like what they've been able to do with Jeremy Fenlison at Port Adelaide. Uh, in this game, he kicked 1-2 off 17 disposals and 9 marks and he's just, he's found a way to be impactful at the forward positions with his size and physicality and marking ability, whether or not He's kicking goals, whereas on a lot of teams, it's like, if you're not kicking goals, you're not going to be useful at all. It's like, uh, you know, Harry Mackay, especially. I think he's the first one that really comes to mind there. So the way he's been able to get involved is pretty neat. I felt overall this was a team win for Port Adelaide. In terms of a goal-kicking perspective, it certainly was. They're the first team to win without a multiple goal-kicker since the Blues didn't in round 12 of 2020 against Frio. That was the game where Jack Noons kicked the winner after the siren, even though Mick Gibbons should have gotten the shot. And it's the also tough to compare that when it's a shorter game. Okay, then Adelaide in 2019 round seven, also against Frio, was the last time that it occurred in a game with 20-minute quarters. The numbers for Port were very much what you'd expect in this game, too. In terms of possessions, who it was that ended up getting the goals, Zach Butters continuing his really strong work with a goal from 32 disposals and 631 meters gain. He looked a little more human at times, whereas a week earlier it was like, holy shit, this guy is unstoppable. But he played a nice game. Uh, Connor Rosie has just been Mr. Consistent, a behind off 27 disposals and 541 meters. If you're like multitasking, watching something else, trying to, trying to get some on Tinder, text some mad fly honeys, whatever it is you're doing, you look up, he's involved with the play. Uh, Dan Houston, 25 disposals and 551 meters. Kane Farrell, 23 disposals. Ollie Wines, goal, 21 disposals, 12 contested possessions. This, there was never a moment after early in the fourth where it looked like things were really scary. Honestly, I mean, it, the lead did get down to two after the first goal of the fourth quarter. So early in the third, the Butters goal had poured up 18. But Samson Ryan scored with 5.39 left in the third to cut the lead down to five. And then Tim Tirano scored his third goal after a Cam McIntosh setup, which was preceded by a bad kick by Jason Horn Francis, who had a not super remarkable game. It was decent. You knew he had the ball because people were booing him, although 
they did confuse him with Bergman once or twice, which I think we all do. I, I'm, I'm not going to fault anyone for that. I've done it in real time. But uh, it was 56-54 with 17 minutes left. But Lord got a goal less than two minutes later, and Port Adelaide were able to get the lead back out to three kicks off of a Finlayson goal. And then after Judson Clark, who would come on as the sub for Richmond, got one to cut the lead to 11. Horn Francis got another off of a high tackle from Noah Balta, or just high contact, I guess. He didn't hold him for long, but I thought it was the right call. My issue is that there's been so many other high tackles and so much other high contact that wasn't called, especially in the Crows-Lions game, but really throughout the round, that was something that got really annoying. Like, I just, I just want some consistency. But really, the play where Port won this game came between the time their lead had been cut to two and the time Lord put it back out to eight. Or you could even say they won the game an hour before it started when they announced Francis Evans as the sub. He's now 12-0. Should have kept. Remember, the 21st century record for wins to begin a career is Jake Bowie with 17. All-time record is 18 from an old Collingwood player from the 20s. Uh, Kane Farrell, by the way, 23 disposals, got involved more second half. Ollie Wines, a goal off 21 and 12 contested possessions. Alir Alir, slow start to the game, still ended up racking up 15 disposals and 10 intercepts. And Lockie Jones, he of the magnificent hair and mustache, 12 disposals, 10 contested possessions, 10 intercepts. To bring him in when you need some serious defensive help and get an instant impact from the guy you brought in instead of, you know, everyone just has to step up a little bit is a pretty nice luxury to have. And I think that just about confirms that on most teams, he'd probably just be in every week. He's probably not going to be, you know, leaving to try to return home because he's from South Australia. Played for Woodville West Torrens in the Sandful, but maybe at some point later in his career, if he's just like, man, I really want more playing time if those opportunities haven't come, which I think they will. I think as guys age out, there will be more and more chances for him. But solid player to have come in and just do that right away. Power had 22 more inside 50s, nine more free kicks. Richmond did land 18 more tackles, but Port had six more inside 50. Uh, the biggest reason Richmond stayed in this game was one Tim Taranto, who uh, maybe you should have captained this week, huh? Wouldn't have made the difference. I still would have lost, but he kicked 4-1 from 33 disposals, had seven clearances and seven tackles. Even though Richmond got it to within two, I just knew that Taranto wouldn't be able to carry the team the whole way on his own, and that really is what should have been required here. I love him doing this against Port Adelaide of all teams after the Stuff Kane Corns has said. Like, I, is he now the 149th best player? I think he's way, way better than that. If, and if you don't have him top 50, I don't know what you're saying. And once again, like, I've said this before, even in a loss, even though this season hasn't, you know, yielded the returns they've wanted from a win and loss standpoint, Richmond have to be looking at that trade and saying, yeah, we got what we wanted out of this. Just as long as those two keep performing. It'll be better than whatever that draft pick could yield unless it yields like the next greatest thing to ever hit the football world, in which case you'd probably leave GWS and end up at Geelong anyway. I hope. Other notable stats for the Tigers, Dion Presti with 29 disposals, Nathan Broad 24 and 649 meters. I remember you said he was one of your biggest point getters as well. Shade Bone kicked 1-3 from 23 disposals at 585 meters, had a couple of those misses there in the second quarter. 
He's such an interesting player because he can do so much fancy stuff, but also isn't like a guaranteed set shot, which I'm sure is frustrating, but also makes him such a fun watch because you don't know what he's going to give you. Tommy Ancurvis had 29 hitouts, 22 disposals, 13 contested possessions, and 8 tackles. He's back. Jaden Short, 2 behinds, 22 disposals, 490 meters. Daniel Riolia behind, 20 disposals, 501 meters. Noah Balta, a more solid defender these past couple weeks, 19 disposals and 12 intercepts. I think if you're a really good team, Noah Balta is your second or third best kind of one-on-one defender. To have him against the number one guy is tough. But if he's like your second or third, you're in really good shape. I mean, I, I thought of him as kind of more of the second because Broad's been a more man defender as of late, which is something at which he's definitely improved the past few years. I thought of him as more of a loser defender in the past. So there's that. Richmond are still, of course, banged up. Josh Gibkiss has yet to play this year. You compare where they were when they made their flag runs and the kind of health they had to what they've suffered through these past few years. And you can understand part of their struggles along with, you know, that premiership course starting to age. I mean, that's look, look at the teams that made the grand final last year and look at where they are this year. Health wise, you got to be healthy to go on a run or at least mostly healthy. Like Collingwood right now, they're not 100% healthy, but they've been they haven't lost any like massive pieces. One other little Richmond thing I want to touch on, you know, they had that stretch where they really had no Ruckman and they didn't let it completely torpedo them like it could have. Like, I know they aren't winning a ton of games right now, but they've stayed afloat in times that really could have sank a lot of teams to the bottom, which makes me think if this is like a down year for them, you know, their down is still not too bad, which which is a pretty impressive thing. Like, even if they're losing some of these games, they keep tuned in week to week. Technically, this does count as another, you know, close loss and another close win for the power that wasn't, you know, within six or seven points, which would have really, really twisted the knife. I still think Richmond wins their next game that's within a goal. Oh, I think so. But, like, this was not, you know, a punch to the dick loss. It was just, they got beat. There were some what-if moments. But it's not like, you know, there's any one play that you're looking at. It's like, we lost this game because of this call or this missed point-blank shot or, you know, this guy not realizing he was getting chased down. It was a result that you'd expect. It was not a game decided by one play. You mentioned Collingwood staying healthy. They did cop an important injury in their 35-point win against North Melbourne. Collingwood 16-905 to North 10-10-70. Unfortunately, it was one of their milestone men. Steele Sidebottom didn't even make it out of the first quarter of his 300th game because of an MCL injury. He still seemed to be in pretty good spirits, was still signing autographs, and was walking pretty well. So even though I know that can be something that affects lateral movement more, he didn't seem to be too hampered by it. It's one of those where you got to ask, like, if it's a final, is he staying in and playing through it? Well, I guess that allowed the focus to shift toward the couple hundredth gamers in this one. There was a former Pi on North Side who was playing at his hundredth, Jaden Stevenson. And I think Pi's fans did give him a bit of respect considering the start that he'd had with them was a rising star for him, did kick a couple goals. But this was also Mason Cox's hundredth game. And that was what mattered to me watching this one. He doesn't quite weigh 65 tons. He's not 12 yards long or two lanes wide, but he and the Canyon Arrow both give me a lot of American pride. How animated he and his family got for both of his goals made it 
all worth it and great interview afterward, giving a bit of his perspective on the journey that he's had and Darcy Moore being alongside him also giving his take on it was really nice. Look, it's been a pretty well-documented journey. It's not like we need to retell much of his story to anyone listening to this. But I hope that more and more Americans start to pick up. Like, you know, people saw the 60 Minutes clip, but I want to get more, like, younger fans interested and get more people just fascinated by, like, this guy as a figure. Because, just like, to go professional in a sport that you didn't play until you were an adult is one thing. You know, there are guys that, like, grew up playing basketball and end up switching over to football or something. But to do it in a sport that you had never heard of is is different. He first heard of the sport when he was 23. Nine years later, he's at 100 games for the biggest club in Australia. And he's earned every single one of those. North did have their chances to stay in this game, even though Collingwood led by four goals to none at quarter time. North kicked 2-5 in the second quarter, and if they wanted to keep pace, that the accuracy there was going to be required. They did win the fourth quarter, six goals to three, but by then, Collingwood had definitely taken their foot off the gas. Their pressure had noticeably declined. I was not very hooked on this game at any point, other than when Mason had a chance to score. That was nice. Other than that, it was like, all right, the Richmond-Port Adelaide game is still close, and then it was time to lock in on Adelaide-Brisbane, so... You know, this game kind of went as as expected, largely. Yeah, it did. Jordan DeGoey with a dominant first half. He's so often a barometer for Collingwood. First half, he had 18 disposals at 80% efficiency, five inside 50s and 299 meters. Ended up with 35 disposals and a goal. The typical guys had the big games. Nick Dacos, a goal from 32 and seven clearances. Tom Mitchell, 29 disposals and eight marks. That mark total is a little bit higher for him. Scott Pendlebury with 23 and 7 tackles, Jack Crisp 21, Isaac Quainer 19 disposals, 12 contested possessions, and 11 intercepts. It was Josh Dacos that impressed me the most with his kicks for goal in this game for Collingwood, kicking three straight from 18 disposals, had a couple tough ones in there. You know, it's amazing to think that despite the start that he had to his career, winning goal of the year in 2020, he's so overshadowed by his younger brother. The other things that, that kept me compelled looking at this game Seeing what Harry Sheasel would do, not just because he's on my fantasy team, but because he's Harry Sheasel, there was a time where Seven thought he had been subbed off because he went down to the rooms after he got in the cleat to the head, ended up getting stitches and coming back in and ended up actually being Phoenix Spicer who was subbed off. Um, we had a bit of a laugh about that one. I mean, I, I get it. Sheasel and Spicer are almost identical, really hard to tell apart. Oh, completely, yeah. The player that I really noticed out of this game from North was Eddie Ford who was just playing his second game of the year after playing against the Swans. Didn't have a goal himself, but was a good kick in the field, set up a couple good scoring chances in the middle quarters. I'm looking for something I can latch onto from North's younger side. I'm looking for someone different week in and week out for them. You know, Sheasel and Wardlaw have established himself. Wardlaw in just two games. Just needs to figure out how to kick for goal. Frustrating that he didn't get one, had a couple chances at it. Yeah, but... This week, it, it was Eddie Ford that impressed me the most. The thing that I really noticed from the casual watch of parts of this game to me was that, you know, the team stats kind of evened up late because of the North fourth quarter, but it seemed like Collingwood just had such easy opportunities and made good on them pretty early in this game, and that, that was really what allowed them to take control and never really look back. 
Yeah, Ben McKay looks out of it. I don't know whether it's that he's simply not the player that he once was or that he doesn't care to be at North and wants to move on this offseason. Joshua Silveri, who's a North fan that we talked to online, seemed to be of the opinion that McKay just didn't care. I mean, I I get it. Like, he had just played a game in Sydney the other night, and that didn't go very well. That may have been weighing on his conscience. You know, obviously, we talked about his struggles there. Playing two games and losing both of them in the same week is not my idea of a good time. So, I mean, credit to him for just powering through it. From the more regular, I guess, more experienced performers for North, Nick Larkey kicking five wasn't surprising because he's been such a frequent target. He did miss one pretty easy snap in the second quarter, I think it was, but that he's doing this when he's at the front of every scouting report is pretty cool. And then Bailey Scott has continued to be the guy to get more of those quarter possessions and be a real accelerator in the midfield alongside Jai Simkin while Luke Davies-Uniak remains out. So hopefully that distribution of North's possessions will continue even once LDU gets in because Scott's smart with the ball in hand. Bailey Scott led North with 30 disposals, 621 meters. He kicked a goal. Will Phillips, 29 disposals. Hugh Greenwood kind of came out of nowhere. Second week in a row, 25 disposals, 16 contested possessions, 11 tackles, 10 clearances. Degoe ended up going to Greenwood later in the game at center bounces, which was a real sign of respect there from Degoe and Craig McRae and staff. Jack Zebel, 23 disposals, 7 marks. Jai Simkin with 22, Harry Sheasel with 21, Luke McDonald, 19 with 11 intercepts, and Larky, in addition to the 5-2, had 13 disposals and 8 marks. This game really didn't change my perception of much about either team other than that you seem to like Eddie Ford, and I'll keep an eye out for him when North play this week against Essendon. All right, those last three games were, they were games, I mean, Richmond and Port kept our attention for longer, but the result wasn't in doubt for a lot of it. I'm glad that the round closer was as captivating as it was, though. The Adelaide Crows 14-11-95, defeating the Brisbane Lions 10-18-78. The Lions falter again away from the Gabba, although I'm really impressed with what the Crows' back six managed to do against that deep Brisbane forward group. We'd highlighted them as a concern going into the year, and they held their own. Josh Worrell came back in and had a really solid game. Wayne Miller had that carrying role that we expected from him. It was important as well that Tom Dude was back from concussion, had a couple of important spoils. You know, when Donnie Hess and I were talking earlier, he said that the Crows had their mulligan game the prior week out in Ballarat against the Dogs. You got to remember who they were missing that game, though. Dude, Worrell, Riley Phil Thorpe, Taylor Walker. This looked like the complete Adelaide team we've gotten to know over the first nine rounds before that game of the Central Highlands. Yeah, it was In hindsight, I think that was probably not a great game to rest Walker. I don't know how much of a difference it would have made, but it probably would have helped. But they looked good, um, especially Josh Rochelle, who had a couple of nice setups and kicked a really important dribbler late in the third after the Lions had at one point cut it to four. They had trailed by nine, and then with 30 seconds left in the third, he kicked a really awesome dribbler at a 64 degree angle that put him back up by 15 really re-energized the crowd and then to follow that up a due day spoil and some pressure from max michelaney on charlie cameron prevented the lions from scoring and it got like 
such a great crowd reaction that usually the third quarter siren doesn't get unless it's a you just kicked their ass all quarter ovation. This was not the case. It was like the fans realized we just got a couple of goals we really needed and we escaped here with a two and a half goal lead. I think they realized that the siren may have let them off the hook a little bit, but also that their defense had stood up all night when the Lions obviously didn't do themselves any favors in front of goal. They kicked one nine in the third. 19 inside 50s for the third quarter. There were stretches in both the first and third quarter where I think it's fair to ask what the hell the Lions were doing, where they had so many opportunities. I mean, that early 22 to 8 lead, they had kicked 3 5 and really could have delivered a punch to the gut early, could have been up, you know, 30 something points. But it's not like they were missing many super easy shots. They were taking and missing tougher ones. So here's the question. Did Adelaide's defense kind of coerce them, goad them into those shots? Did the Lions just kind of settle for them? I think there's, I think it's a mix of both. And then also the conditions were a bit adverse in this game and the Lions tend to get, I thought it was weird that, you know, the team that's used to playing in humidity and wet conditions, you know, a light rain gave them so much trouble. I don't know. Maybe there's just really rain averse like the Dockers were last year. But there was an important out in this game. We talked about the ins for the Crows. The single most important out this week. It was not Clayton Oliver or Lockie Hunter for the Ds. It was Jack Payne for the Lions. Yeah, I did not think the drop-off from him to Ryan Lester was so significant. And I was disappointed by that. Lester had been that next defender up. He was my sleeper pick for the Lions this year. But since Marcus Adams had gone down at the end, near the end of the home and away season... Last year, Payne had been that defender who'd gone the time, and he had started off the year so well, both as kind of a zone and man defender. If we're kind of borrowing American football terminology there, I'm still so impressed with how he shut down Charlie Curnow and limited him to one goal on the Friday night or a couple rounds ago. He has been the main support for Harris Andrews, and yeah, Lester, who's carry from the back six I like, wasn't able to keep with it as that man defender. Brisbane defenders as a whole struggled. They had multiple sequences that will go kick out, turnover, and then, you know, they give up a behind and then they turn it over on the kick out again. Daniel Rich kicked a pretty cool goal early in the game, blasting one from 65 that bounced through the goal square, but he was surprisingly sloppy getting it out of his own end. Really, the only Brisbane defender I liked in this game was Kadeen Coleman, who did a nice job intercepting along the wing. Uh, yeah, Rich had turnover issues, Lester struggled against Adelaide's taller forwards, and Harris Andrews was limited to five disposals. Some important suspensions coming out of this game, by the way. We just got the news here. Um, Dane Zorko and Rory Laird. Zorko, for what appeared to have been gouging, even though it wasn't officially cited as such, it was contact to the eye region against Luke Pedlar after the opening goal of the game, and then... Laird for a tackle on locking Neal. This is this reminds me of the Catlin Wartz suspension where Neal may have bought into it a bit. It ought to be challenged and it won't be overturned because it's a dangerous tackle. This is gonna fuck my team in the ass for next week. It's gonna fuck a lot of people over. I mean, I had a feeling Zorko was getting his. They have a bye this week. Is just one game for Zorko? One game for both of them. Okay. But yeah, uh, drafting on the dunny gonna be in the Gonna be in a tough spot. Yikes. I'm I'm surprised about the uh Laird one. I didn't notice 
he did anything even remotely suspension worthy, whereas Zorko, like, it, it was a bit high and dangerous. This was in the third quarter. Don't think we noted it because it wasn't part of a scoring passage. But yeah, the Lions had their chances in both 50s and couldn't really capitalize on them. They were plus 19 in inside 50s. Like I said, the 3-5 in the first quarter could have been up a lot more. And the 1-9 in the third. That Rochelle goal really changed the game around. Lead was down to 9 after a Danaher goal with 17-28, not 38 left. But Josh Rochelle able to keep a play alive and set up Jake Saligo for a goal. Then a Luke Pedler goal in the run. I thought it was nice to see so many people, including Dwayne Russell, respect Luke Pedler's game. Like, I really like this kid. I think he does such a good job setting up the other forwards. And I'm still surprised from when the Cats played him a few weeks ago that they kind of let him operate and cut off pretty much every other option except Taylor Walker instead of kind of like trying to shut down the main artery. Like so many things flow through Pedler to set up those forwards and that he wasn't. I think the point is it's about time that teams play closer to him. Maybe even though, you know, Laird's the possession machine, I'd put a guy on Luke Pedler and have someone who's more physical run with him, try to impede him because he's a really physical carrier of the ball. And when he doesn't finish himself, he's really smart as to where to look for the connections. He's he doesn't hesitate to look for shorter options when, you know, the big goal kickers like Walker are further away. And I like that. I think this is a game that Brisbane, you look at, it's like you're frustrated, but at the same time, a lot of correctable mistakes that if you look at this right and you just say, okay, got a few things that need to be cleaned up next time we go out and face a really good team, especially on the road, everything's fine. So I think they got in their own way more than anything. Like the Crows earned this win, but the Lions kind of, Kind of made things a little easier for them than they needed to. All right, I just watched the Rory Laird tackle again. This is fucking terrible. Like, it shouldn't be a suspension. Yes, thank you. But it will be. No dangerous tackle suspension has been overturned this year. It will not change. That's that's nothing. That's just a normal tackle. They're trying to eliminate that sling motion from the game, and even if the head doesn't hit super hard, I guess that's really, really bad. Brownlow Knight's just going to be a nightmare seeing all the X's up on the, on a leaderboard. See, that? I'm going to enjoy that. That's going to be funny to me. Both Anil's arms were free. They're I guess they're going with potential to cause injury because it was sort of a sling. I, I don't like if, this. If one. you're not pinning the arm, as much as I thought Dwayne Russell called a shitty game the night before, I actually really liked what he said. In this one, he noticed Hugh McCluggage like, tipping it behind through instead of marking it. And that took the lead from 23 to 24, and he made a note of that. It was like, yeah, he actually he had some good observations. When he's not just, like, you know, going on and on about the same player all game, he can actually tell you some stuff. So that was refreshing. We said that for Adelaide to keep pace, this is going back before round seven, that they'd need two wins out of the five-game stretch, round seven through 11. They got them between the Saints and the Lions. They sit in... Seventh with better percentage than both Essendon and Frio. I am licking my chops about that game out in Darwin that they got against the Suns coming up. That's going to be fun. And that's going to be my game to focus on. Even without like the Isaac Rankin subtext, like that's just a really exciting game. After that, West Coast, meh. So they have a bye, then they have their actual bye. But then at Collingwood, hosting North, eh. 
At Essendon, interesting. Rematch with GWS, interesting. At Melbourne, interesting. Showdown rematch, interesting. Yes, other than those couple of Eagles games, and I guess the one against North, we're going to be talking a lot about the Crows. And I mean, I had, you know, we had kind of isolated them at the start of the year as what should be a really interesting team. But the way it's all gone down has made this, it's worked out nicely just from a, from an entertainment standpoint. Jordan Dawson with 32 disposals and an octopus, but I thought Ben Keyes was really the best player for the Crows. They had someone running with him for the first half, and I think they went off that a bit in the second. It was Laird who got the 10 votes, and Keyes didn't get any votes. That's bizarre. Keyes, a goal, two behinds, 28 disposals, 11 score involvements, and nine tackles. I thought it was his best game of the year by far. Laird, 27 disposals and six tackles. Isaac Rankin, you know, it's cool that he played really well, and Bailey Humphrey, who the Suns drafted with the pick they got for him, had a really good game. That's looking like a win-win. I mean, I'd rather have Rankin at this moment because, you know, one of them's 18 and one of them's a, an established player. But two goals, three behinds, 23 disposals, 16 contested possessions, 13 score involvements. When you get both him and Rochelle going, this is such a fun group of small forwards to watch. Wayne Miller at 22 disposals. Chase Jones, 17 disposals and 490 meters gained. Riley O'Brien, 52 hitouts, only 15 disposals and nine contested possessions. You know, we've said his job is just get the hitouts, and he's good at that. Him and Jared Witz this coming week. That'll be fun. Uh, by the way, despite losing inside 50s by 19, you know, the Crows were 7% more efficient and more than 14% more efficient inside 50, and not surprising that the he with Rory Laird laid 16 more tackles. Laird himself had 16. There's your margin. Before we go into Brisbane stuff, I just want to mention with having to watch John Segler, who's clearly not the player he once was, like seeing the different types of Ruckman and seeing like a guy like Oscar McInerney, who actually has confidence in his kicking ability, which is well-placed. Seeing a guy who can actually, you know, tap the ball to himself and do something with the kick instead of just like the moment he gets the ball, looks around like, oh, fuck, I got to get this to somebody else. I can't do anything. This is bad. McInerney had 57 hitouts, 13 disposals, and 11 contested possessions. You don't normally see two rucks each having 50 hitouts in a game. It requires a lot of stoppages and just the same guys going up for the, the contest again and again. I didn't think either Ruckman really like beat the other kind. Call that one-on-one a draw. It was the forwards who won this game for the Crows, and it was both defensive struggles and forward struggles that lost it for the Lions. Though Charlie Cameron did kick four goals straight, he's had a knack for putting up some bags in interstate games. Having him and Rankin trade goals late in the game at the end of the Sir Doug Nichols round was awesome. Josh Dunkley was the leading possession getter for the Lions of 29 disposals, 19 contested possessions, and 9 tackles. Lockie Neal, 26 disposals, 18 contested, 11 clearances, 8 tackles. Zach Bailey kicked 0-2 from 25 disposals. Daniel Rich kicked a goal from the center square. (laughs) 24 disposals, 735 meters gained, though some of his kicking out of the back 50 left something to be desired. Dane Zorko, 1-2 from 22 and 10 contested possessions. The bigger players put up the bigger numbers, but it was a deeper performance from the Crows as a whole. And again, I remain impressed by their defensive unit, even though the Lions certainly helped them out by not kicking super accurately toward goal. After getting behind by a couple goals early, you know who kicked two goals straight to get the Crows back on track? 
Riley Philthorpe. We've been championing Philthorpe before we started this uh, this show and our Twitter account and everything. I am the Riley Philthorpe is good guy. I mean, so am I. We were both right there from the beginning. I, I define myself as more of the Philthorpe is good guy and you as the Nathan O'Driscoll is good guy. I've, I'm at, I've had a couple others, too. Actually, in terms of Frio, I'm more of the Bailey Banfield is good guy. I mean, Lockie Schultz, I guess he's a little more well-known already, but we talk a lot about Frio. That's fun. Aside from the Cats losing, this was actually like a really fun round full of entertaining games, not just because there were so many upsets. There were just a lot of close action games that kept you interested throughout. Very little baby-making footy. I guess some of the uh, Bombers-Eagles game could have been, but there was another good game going on at the same time. So nine months from now, don't expect the hospitals to be too busy. So that does it for our discussion of the nine games of the round. We will close the episode with our nominee discussion like we usually do. We had another record vote as we did for gold a week a couple rounds ago when Brody Mychek took home 98% for the mark of the week for round 10. Ash Johnson had 97% of the votes for his kind of sideways mark on Mark Pittnet. These West African-style election results, again, does it help that they were Collingwood plays? Yes, but also they were just impressive plays regardless. Your Mark of the Week nominees for Round 11 are Rowan Marshall over Lloyd Meek with a juggling finish, Oliver Henry over Brad Close, and Jesse Hogan over Sam DeConing with Zach Guthrie behind him to basically finish the game. I thought Henry wasn't even the best Geelong Mark. I thought Tyson Stengel had a better one, but either way, gonna be runner-up. Hogan's the winner this week. Out of the Henry second, Marshall third. Out of the three, I was most impressed by Hogan. It was on replay where you notice how much he got his leg over DeConing and just how much of a jump he had on the play to begin with. His marking ability remains really strong even when his goal king gets even less consistent. Last week's goal of the week was Paul Curtis, who took a ball that was knocked free by Liam Shields, got up, shrugged off both Robbie Fox and Nick Blakey before scoring at a 68-degree angle from the left pocket. For his efforts, he got omitted this week. Well, he was the sub. Again, I I don't like that the sub is named out of the emergencies an hour before. I I would rather have five interchange players and you name the sub out of one of those. It makes for, you know, omitted discussion to be a lot more convoluted and clickbaity. I did like that you know, GWS had announced like way earlier in the week that Josh Fahey was going to debut as the sub. Like if you're going to do that, give them like some more advanced notice and yeah, make it make it public, which which they did. So they handled that right. We've seen clubs do that throughout the year. Cooper White for the Cats in round one, Matty Johnson for the Dockers of the Western Derby. I think that's something that clubs have figured out. Your nominees for goal of the week. You had Kazi Pickett beating Brandon Walker for a ball on the boundary. He accelerated and had this end-over-end kick at a very nice 69-degree angle from 34 meters out. The third bounce popped right over Hayden Young for the opening goal of the game. That was the highlight of for me, was that it wasn't just a dribbler, but, you know, it's rolling, it's rolling, and then it takes this ridiculously high bounce. Like, that's... I mean, he was... That's not how physics are supposed to work. He was looking for it, though, by kicking end-over-end to get that bounce to carry over the defenders, and he got it. The list of players that can do that, that have the wherewithal to see that and set that up. There's got to be like Cosy Pickett, Shea Bolton. I think that's the list. Maybe Isaac Rankin? 
though he though he doesn't tend to have as many rolling goals, he ran onto a, a Riley O'Brien tap and snapped at a pretty harsh angle himself. And hey, maybe his teammate Josh Rochelle could pull off something like that too, because he got a handball from Riken on the boundary and kicked a roller on the outside of the boot at a 64 degree angle from 34 meters out. That was the last goal before three quarter time, the huge reaction there, and then the defensive stand that solidified the Crows' hold on the game. I think this is a really tough vote between Kazi and Rochelle. Where do you stand, Ethan? I've gone back and forth multiple times. Not going to be bothered whichever one wins that, but I am going to go with Pickett because that third bounce was that like in the moment. Whoa, even though the Rochelle goal was super impactful in the course of the game. I also take Kazi's because he did more to make that play happen, out-muscling Brandon Walker to get to the ball in the first place and then being able to get the separation required to make the kick. Both of them were great kicks, so when it's two really good kicks going up against each other, usually I try to figure out which of the players had the greater solo effort, and, for, and it was Kazi. Seeing so many of the indigenous small forwards play so well. It's like when you think of best indigenous players and the Sir Doug Nichols round, you think small forwards, right? Charlie Cameron, Kazi, obviously, you know, go just a couple years back, Eddie Betts. Still love the insight that Eddie gives on Fox footy as well. He is so good for the game. Main character for the round. Last week, it was the interchange breach, or I guess the number 76 or 76 out of 75, because... That was the first time that breach had occurred since the interchange steward rule had been brought into place because of another North versus Sydney game. Main character this week, I was thinking, you know, which player would it be? You know, you had a couple big individual performances, obviously, Lakotius with the five goals doing so much for the Suns, but I didn't think of him as really a main character. I think it's a group of players. I was at first thinking about some of the umpiring, especially the umpiring out in Darwin, but... I was just thinking Darwin in general could be a main character. Maybe if you go across this round and next, you could argue it if the, the Suns Crows game holds up. But what'd you go with, Ethan? I went with, and this was my pick, mind you. You asked me who I thought the main characters were. I came up with the correct answer. They've kind of been a main character story arc for weeks now. And this week, it's really hard to say that they're not the biggest one. It's time to give the spotlight to the Carlton forwards. Any of them, all of them, you're the main character for reasons. If we had to pick a main character for the month, it might be them. Maybe at the end of the year, we'll go back and try to figure out kind of main characters for, for each month. But yeah, I'd say with the form that the Blues have had and how responsible their form group has been for their struggles, I would say that's pretty accurate. I have no idea how long this episode's going to be. I, I like the, the discussion that we had, obviously, that seemed more open, but... uh. Yeah, now we're up to the buys, and so we'll have some shorter episodes, but more of them. Yes, what we do during the buy rounds, we give our sort of progress reports on each of the teams having buys. So this week, we've got four of them. The buys go four up in round 12, two in round 13, and then six apiece in rounds 14 and 15. So each week, if you're a fan of those clubs, you'll hear a little bit about kind of where your team is, expectations versus reality, Revisit what we said in our season preview. And then in that round 13 one, because it's only two teams, we're also going to give our rankings. Last year, we ranked a couple different things. We ranked club songs and the Sir Doug Nichols round jumpers. This year, you know, it's not like the club songs have changed. 
So we're just going to rank the Sir Doug Nichols round jumpers. So that'll all be in one episode along with the Geelong and Gold Coast progress reports. Don't forget, we're on Twitter at Americans Footy. I'm on Twitter at Castle Media. Brian Harambe is outside the room making a bunch of noise and rattling the door. So if you heard something really adorable, that was that was him. Yeah, I'm on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. I think Ryan may have put his mouse toy into the room, which is why he was trying to reach underneath the door. But I think he also just wants in. So we're going to wrap up and uh, allow Ethan to have some father-son time here. Thanks again for tuning in. Thank you.